0: So go ahead and subscribe to us and follow along. I am especially grateful to introduce a friend to you. So if you're new to us, uh, or perhaps you've not been in a few weeks, you know that during the summer, during the previous three summers, um, while I've been working on my doctorate, during the summertime, I have the privilege of inviting friends to come as I'm working on doctoral projects and papers to present something that nourishes the soul. And today, I get to introduce you to Dr. Meredith Stone. Now, much of what is to be said about Dr. Stone is on the back. By the way, Meredith, we have a couple of Dr. Stones in the, the church <laughs> and, and I, uh, that might have scared them to see that they were preaching today. The doc- <laughs> but, but, but it's Dr. Meredith Stone who will bring us a message. And, and here, here is a word Uh, partly written on your your order of worship, and then I want to add uh, one or two more words. Dr. Meredith Stone serves as Director of Ministry Guidance and Instructor of Christian Ministry and Scripture on the faculty of Logston School of Theology at Hardin-Simmons University. Her work includes teaching ministry and Bible courses and providing vocational counsel and placement services for ministry students and alumni Dr. Stone received the Bachelor of Arts and Master of Arts in Religion from Hardin-Simmons University and, now follow this, completed her Ph.D. in Biblical Interpretation from Bright Divinity School of Texas Christian University in December 2016. So she just finished an eight, seven-year, seven-year journey? Seven-year journey in completion of her Ph.D. But I want you to know what her Ph.D. was about. See, that's something that matters to me these days. (laughs) Listen to the title of her dissertation, which she has just recently defended. Here it is. And the lowly devoured those held in honor, empire, and gender in the Septuagint version of Esther. And in case that that doesn't translate, here's what that means in, in layman's terms. An imperial critical reading of the Septuagint version of Esther, which illuminates the structures <laughs> of empire and the varied and complex negotiations with empire, uh, with specific attention to the performance of gender within the interplay of power. Somebody say, Amen. <laughs> right? Or if that doesn't translate, here's what her dissertation was about Esther. <laughs> you with me now? So we are we are so truly honored to have um, Dr. Meredith bringing her uh, Dr. Stone bringing her gifts and her calling to this pulpit today. Uh, She is an ordained minister and regularly preaches in churches as well as conferences and retreats. She also serves on the board of directors for the Baptist Standard, on the Baptist World Alliance Commission for Christian Ethics, and she is currently the interim pastor of Emerging Adults at First Baptist Church in Abilene. She and her husband, James, have two daughters, Hallie and Kinsey. Hallie, who's 13, and Kinsey, who is nine. Now, she didn't put this in her bio, and it's probably because she, she, she doesn't want to brag, but after I pulled it out of her, I said, tell me something else about you. She said, well, she's a three-time All-American golfer, and is in the HSU Hall of Fame, uh, and has to get on a plane today, so you can't play with her. But she's coming to play with us right now. So would you give a JCBC welcome to Dr. Meredith Stone?
1: Well, good morning. It is a privilege to be with you this morning. Um, Sean and I are new friends. I'm grateful for the invitation and uh, thankful that we have mutual friends who introduced us. Though I did hear that maybe he's made a joke about my beloved school calling us the hardened sinners. So we'll just have to see about this friendship, yeah. yeah. Uh, My friend knows what we're talking about right there, yeah. But I I do, I teach ministry uh, and scripture at Hardin-Simmons University. Uh, My PhD was mostly in Hebrew Bible or Old Testament, which my husband refers to as the other part of the Bible. Uh, People like to ask me, why the Old Testament? Why would you study the Old Testament? And I always tell them, it's the stories. The stories. I mean, it's this one big story of God relating to humanity and and seeking to offer redemption, but it's all these little interconnected stories too. And sometimes they're a little spicy, you know? Stories of love and intrigue and And sometimes father-in-laws turned assassins, and sometimes we have talking snakes and donkeys. I mean, there are some stories in the Old Testament, and I just love stories. And I think maybe I've passed down my love of stories to my daughters. Uh, They love stories of any form. They love the stories that we tell about them when they were little. uh, But they also love books and TV and movies. And not that long ago, about a year and a half, there was a, a movie that was coming out that they really wanted to see. You might have heard of this movie. It was continuing a very popular galactic plotline. It was The Force Awakens, the, the last movie of the Star Wars series of movies. I know that the next one's coming out very soon. But my girls wanted to see this movie so much because all of their friends were going to see it. Only one problem. While we had indoctrinated our oldest a little bit into the Star Wars movies, she had seen bits and pieces. Our youngest had never seen any of them. So my husband and I decided that it was our responsibility as good parents to educate these girls on Star Wars. And so six nights in a row, we watched the six previous movies leading up to when we went to the theater. Thank you. Yeah, it's responsibility as a good parent. We wanted our girls to know the backstory, the backstory to to Ray and Finn and Kylo Ren. Backstories have become really popular in film, right? We see it in a lot of hero stories, some of our superhero stories. Our our hero is someone whose life is on a particular trajectory, but then in their backstory, they encounter some sort of need or suffering, and it transforms the rest of their life. We see it in stories like Harry Potter, Peter Parker, he's got a new movie out. Uh, we see it in Batman, we see it in Wolverine and even Ray and Finn. Our, our heroes tend to encounter this moment of pain which inspires them to transform the trajectory of their story, and when they do so, they decide that, that they're not going to let trajectories of injustice continue. Instead, they want to work for the triumph of all that is good and just. And so as they change their story, they wind up changing the stories of others as well and participating in this broader plot line for goodness. And so this morning, I want to introduce to you a story from the Bible that's very similar to those kinds of hero backstories. I want to introduce you to who, in my opinion are five of the most influential women in all the Bible. Maklah, Holgla, Milcah, Tirzah, and Noah, also known as the daughters of Zelophehad. Now I know, I know you've heard their story a million times. <laughs> but it's just that good that we can hear it one more time. Their story's found in Numbers 27, if you want to go ahead and, and turn there with me. But even before we start their story in chapter 27, we hear their names for the very first time in the census that's recorded in Numbers 26. In Numbers 26, their names pop up. You see the census goes along and it's telling, you know, clan by clan who all of the people are. And we have to take the census in the book of Numbers at this point because the wilderness wandering is just about over. And so when they take the census, it's for two reasons. One... They need to make sure that all the people of the previous generation who had been unfaithful had died out so that the wandering could be over. And two, they needed to count the number of men that they would have in the army as they went into the promised land to try and conquer it. So we hear so and so had this son, had this son, had this son. And then all of a sudden in Numbers 26 it says Zelophehad, son of Hefer, had no sons, he had only daughters whose names were Makla, Noah, Hogla, Milka, and Tirzah. Before we even read their story, just from seeing their names, we can probably imagine a few things about them. First of all, we know that because they're included in the census, that means they weren't among the previous generation. They weren't among the people who had to die out. And so they were probably born in the wilderness. Their entire lives, they had lived this nomadic existence, which wasn't easy. They'd never had a settled home or a domesticated agricultural system to rely on. They were moving around from place to place. It was a tough life. And as tough as it was, I have to imagine that it was a little bit harder for the women. Because it was the women's responsibilities to pack the tents. It was the women's responsibility to make sure their families were fed. If there were ever any animals to ride on, the women probably weren't afforded that opportunity as the Israelites moved from place to place. And in the wilderness life, as in most depictions of ancient Israelite society, we know that the women had to rely on their men for security and protection and provision. Uh, You see, the the women's hope had to do with the fact that when they reached the promised land, the man with whom they were affiliated would receive an allotment of land, and then the women would be able to have that settled home that would provide the security that they longed for. And so when we meet these five women, the man who they are relying on is the man whose name they they are told in relation to, it's their father. We don't hear any any husband's names, and so we assume that they're not married. So before we read their story, we know two things about them. One, their lives were tough, so they were probably tough. And two, all of their hope was tied to their father. So beginning in Numbers 27, verse 1, it says, The daughters of Zelophehad, son of Hepher, son of Gilead, son of Makir, son of Manasseh, belonged to the clans of Manasseh, son of Joseph, and the names of the daughters were Machla, Noah, Holgla, Milcah, and Tirzah. They came forward and stood before Moses, Eliezer the priest, the leaders, and the whole assembly at the entrance to the tent of meeting. Okay, so our, our, our heroes here, our heroines, are introduced in terms of their ancestry. We're reminded that their hope is tied to their father. And they go forward to the entrance of the Tent of Meeting. Now, the Tent of Meeting, when the Israelites were in the wilderness, it would be set up right in the center. So everybody was camped around it. And here these women go right up into the middle in front of their highest leaders and in front of everybody. The whole assembly. That's all the Israelites. And just in case you're thinking that might be kind of like our assembly here today, it wasn't. We hear the numbers for that previous in the census. We hear how many people there were. 601,730 Israelite men plus 23,000 Israelites. So 624,730 men plus all of the women and children. Millions of people and these women walk straight into the center of it. Talk about the boldness of such a move. The bravery, especially if you happen to be reading Numbers straight through from chapter 1 to chapter 36, because then you would have seen that the last time a woman came and stood at the entrance to the tent of meeting, that was in Numbers 25. That woman had gotten herself impaled by a spear. This took some guts for these women to go to this sacred place and speak to their highest leader. And so the first thing they say when they open their mouths in verse 3, they say, our father has died. We find out what's motivated them. Why they came to this place. The crux of their problem. These women had, had lost a parent. And I'm sure that they felt overwhelming grief. But in addition as women with no brothers or husbands, when their father died, these five women lost a lot more than a parent. They had lost all of their hope. They had lost all their provision and security. These women would be left to live a life in extreme poverty. They would be passed from family to family, treated who knows how, maybe even just left in the wilderness to die. So somehow, through the grief and the hopelessness, they come forward with this plan, and they say to Moses in verse 3, they say, Our father died in the wilderness. He was not among Korah's followers who banded together against the Lord. Those people weren't going to get an inheritance of land. But he died for his own sin and left no sons. Why should our father's name disappear from his clan? Because he had no son. Give us property among our father's relatives. So this is the case that they present to Moses. They, they come before Moses in the is about their family legacy, their father's name. You see, in ancient Israel, part of the, the afterlife was that your name would live on in the land that was allotted to your ancestors and in your sons. And so without either, Zelophehad had no afterlife. And so these women come and they present this case in their father's name. And some people have read this story and they say, oh, well, Zelophehad's daughters, they just wanted some land, something that didn't belong to them, and so they used this bit about their dad to get what they wanted. They were selfish. But we see no evidence of selfishness in this text. We don't, they, they don't come before Moses and say, look at us, they don't point the finger at themselves and say, look at us and all of that, all that we need, though I'm sure the burdens were heavy on their minds. Instead, they point to the concern of their family's legacy. And what's more, if they really were selfish, why did all five of them go together? Would have been bickering among them if they were being selfish. Maklaw, the oldest, might have said, hey, I'll take that inheritance. But no, they come together to Moses. We don't see any evidence of selfishness. And furthermore, I think we can be assured that their intentions are pure when we see God's response to their request. In verse 5, it says, So Moses brought their case before the Lord, and the Lord said to him, What Zelophehad's daughters is saying is right. You must certainly give them property as an inheritance among their father's relatives and give their father's inheritance to them. God says they're right. They were right to come asking for this land. We should have provided for them. Moses, you need to take care of them. Moses, they are right. Do as they say. When their father died, the father of these five women, the trajectory of their story was set. They were (laughs) destined for a life of poverty, They would have to pray that they might get married or else they might just be left to die. But these women, instead of accepting that trajectory of their story, said, no, we're going to do something to change it. And in that moment, their story is forever changed. But here's the greatest part. It's not just their story that gets changed. God doesn't stop and just says the daughters, what they're saying is right. God keeps going. God tells Moses, verse 8, say to the Israelites, if a man dies and leaves no son, give his inheritance to his daughter." If he has no daughter, give it to his brothers. If he has no brothers, give it to his father's brothers. If his father had no brothers, give his inheritance to the nearest relative in his clan that he may possess it. This, God says, is to have the force of law for the Israelites as the Lord commanded Moses. A new law is put into place so that this type of suffering and injustice and need will never occur again. When Zelopheh's daughters changed their story, they changed the story of others as well. Surely this had happened before. Surely some other man had died, leaving no sons but only daughters. But no one thought to say anything. No one thought to come before Moses and present this case. They were content to let a trajectory of need and hurt and injustice continue. But these five women identified the need, and they did something about it. They changed the story. They transformed the trajectory, not only for themselves, but for others. They become a backstory for the triumph of all that is good, a backstory for the triumph of God's mercy and redemption. Today, I think if we would look around us, we would probably see situations very similar to that of these five women. People who seem destined for pain, who live in hurt and suffering, people whose hopelessness is too great to overcome. Or maybe like our five heroines, the the need and the hurt we see in our world is not that of someone else, but it's our own. A a trajectory of our own lives that is in desperate need of transformation. So I think the question for us is, can we become like Makla, Hogla, Milka, Tirzah, and Noah? Can we change the stories Can we identify trajectories of of need and hurt and suffering around us and do something in order that those stories might be transformed to become backstories for the triumph of God's mercy and redemption? Can we become daughters of Zelophehad? Until her death just a couple of years ago, Maya Angelou was an author and a poet, a civil rights activist. She was a woman who had known a lot of hurt in her early life. According to her own autobiographies and what others have said about her, the abuse she suffered as a child was defining for her. But it wasn't defining in that she let it be the thing that continued her trajectory. She did not accept a trajectory of difficulty for her life. Instead, it was defining because she decided to change that trajectory for others. In her poem, Still I Rise, Maya Angelou writes this. You may write me down in history with your bitter, twisted lies. You may tread me in the very dirt, but still, like dust, I'll rise out of the huts of history's shame. I rise up from a past that's rooted in pain. I rise, I'm a black ocean leaping and wide, welling and swelling I bear in the tide, leaving behind nights of terror and fear. I rise into a daybreak that's wondrously clear. I rise bringing the gifts that my ancestors gave. I am the dream and the hope of the slave. I rise, I rise, I rise. Maya Angelou refused to accept trajectories of need and hurt in this world. She refused to let her own hurt hold her down, but instead she let her encounter with it inspire her to rise. And she, in turn, would inspire others so that their stories might change and she would work tirelessly in order that need might be eradicated. Maya Angelou became a backstory for the triumph of God's mercy and redemption. Maya Angelou is a daughter of Zalafahed. In July of 2014, a semi-pro golfer named Chris Kennedy received a challenge on social media. Now, at the time, this challenge was, was relatively unknown, but a friend of his, among his, his golfer community, challenged him to take a bucket of ice-cold water and dump it on his head and or to give $100 to the charity of the challenger's choice. Now, Chris Kennedy decided he would participate in this, and so he he made a video of himself dumping the bucket of ice-cold water on his head. And when it was his turn to challenge someone, he challenged his cousin, Jeanette Sinnerchia, and the name of the charity that he named was the ALS Association. You see, a few months earlier, Jeanette's husband had been diagnosed with ALS, and so Chris had had an encounter with the need associated with this incurable disease. As best as Time Magazine and the Wall Street Journal and Slate Magazine could come up with in their investigations, Chris Kennedy was the first person who named the ALS Association as associated with this ice bucket dumping challenge. It had happened even a few weeks before his and Matt Lauer had named a hospital as the charity of choice on the Today Show. So Chris Kennedy had had this encounter with a need, and whenever a fun opportunity to connect those around him with that hurt came, he took the opportunity. And when he did so, he changed the story of ALS research for years to come, as it's reported that over $115 million were raised by the ice bucket dumping chow. Chris Kennedy is a backstory for the triumph of God's mercy and redemption. Chris Kennedy is a daughter of Zalaphahad. Over 2,000 years ago, someone came into the world, Yeshua ben Yosef ben Elohim, Jesus, son of Joseph, son of God. We hear Jesus often identified in terms of his ancestry and the hope that his ancestry embodied. And though human and divine, Jesus entered our storyline and willingly encountered hurt and pain and injustice and great suffering. And because he did, The trajectories were changed. The story changed into this grand and marvelous plot line for God's grace and goodness and salvation offered to all people. Jesus is the backstory and the current story and the future story of the triumph of God's mercy and redemption. And so I can't help but call Jesus a daughter of Zelophehad as well. And so how will we join them? How will we join this work of changing stories? How will we become like Jesus and Chris Kennedy, Maya Angelou, Makla, Holdla, Milka, Tirzai, Noah? Five seemingly insignificant women whose story has all but been forgotten. What will be the moment when the need we see in us and around us no longer simply moves our emotion, but instead moves our feet? Compels us to change stories. Compels us to become backstories for the triumph of God's mercy and redemption in our world today. May God grant us the courage that one day, it might be said of us, we are the daughters of Zelophehad." Let's pray. God of everything that is good, We come to you as people whose lives don't always seem good. We come to you with with our own hurts and needs. And God, we see the need around us. So we ask that you would would give us the, the boldness, God, the boldness to step into the center of it and be the kind of people that change stories, to be the kind of people that are able to help see your mercy come to pass in this world. Thank you for modeling that for us. Thank you for being the ultimate story. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.